All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. Uh, Marty is not with us today, but that is that is okay because I'm not by myself. I do have a guest, and that is Robert P. Jones. Rob, how are you doing? I'm good. Good. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for hopping on and taking some time to hang out this morning. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. As, so as we kind of get going, we have a, a question that we like to ask all of our guests that come on the show. It's completely unrelated to what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But it's just a, a kind of like a get to know you kind of thing. Uh, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Ice hockey? I grew up in Mississippi. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe a better question is, can you name an ice hockey team? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh uh, let's see. I'm not sure I can. So how about the Blackhawks? There you go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Perfect. My, my wife's from Chicago. So, okay. Um, that's about as close as I get. No, that's, that's perfect. If, if my co-host Marty was here, he'd be very happy because Marty is, uh, from Chicago as well. And he's a huge Blackhawks fan. Uh, I'm, I'm from Maryland. I live in Baltimore, but I work in like the uh, Montgomery County area, which is a suburb of DC. And so I'm yeah. a huge, huge Washington Capitals fan. All right. There um, you go. Yeah, but don't yeah, feel I, bad. I probably should. So, you know, so I'm in Maryland, too. I probably should name oh, cool. Capitals, uh, as my hometown team. But uh, but I'm really not a hockey fan. I'm going to go. I'm going to go with my wife's uh, hometown on this one. Yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> that works. Cool. All right. Um, well, Rob, just for people who aren't familiar with you or your work, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, um, well, my uh, day job is that I am the CEO and founder at Public Religion Research Institute. That's P-R-R-I. You may see us uh, in the media, but we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that conducts research at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics. Uh, we do primarily public opinion research. Um, we interview over 100,000 people a year across you know, 10 or 12 surveys. Um, and then the other uh, hat that I wear is as an author um, and uh, author of uh, most recent book is uh, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Yeah, sweet. That's pretty cool um, that the uh, the research bit is something that I personally am just 
super interesting and intrigued by. And actually that chapter in your book kind of blew my mind. So I'm excited. We'll, we'll get there shortly. Sure. Um, but one last thing, our, our podcast is called Rethinking Faith. And so we always like to ask, um, what is the most important aspect of your faith that you have had to rethink? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it really, I think, has occurred uh, most recently as I was writing this book. I mean, I have a whole chapter on theology, and, you know, part of uh, that chapter was me wrestling. So I grew up, I should say, I grew up Southern Baptist in Mississippi, um, uh, so grew up within the kind of white, and I'm white, so grew up within the kind of white evangelical world. Um, and, you know, there's nothing more central to that. Uh, world than a personal relationship with Jesus, right? That phrase, I must have heard that phrase a hundred thousand times, you know, growing up. Um, and I would say that's the thing that I've had to rethink the most and, and realizing that um, at least the way that I was taught to understand that term and what it meant was so um, really highly individualistic. Um, and it really screened out my ability to see um, kind of claims about social justice uh, systemic racism, all of those things kind of got screened out by the way I was taught to understand uh, a very narrow version of what it meant to have a personal re- relationship with Jesus. So I, I would say that like, that's both kind of a central, you know, thing to my, my upbringing and my kind of Christian worldview growing up. And it's probably been the thing that I've had to do the most work on um, kind of rethinking. Awesome. Yeah. That, that's a really good one that I know for a fact that uh, a lot of our listeners um, will relate to that heavily. So that, that's a good one for sure. Um, so yeah, you, you had mentioned uh, that you wrote a book called White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. And that's what we wanted to, to talk to you about today. It was a really great book. I enjoyed it. Um, no, thanks. Yeah, yeah. It was recommended to me by a friend of mine named Dave. Uh, Dave and Jen Holly recommended it to me and um, said, yeah, you have to get Robert on the show. And so I said, all right, I can do that. And uh, so I was excited. It's a good recommendation. Uh, very helpful uh, book. Absolutely. And I guess the first question that I just wanted to ask is like, what led you to write such a Mm. difficult, but also necessary book? Yeah, well, I've given you some clues. I mean, I think the fact that I grew up in the deep South, um, you know, inside the white evangelical world, um, where these, uh, tensions were all around me and yet never really addressed, you know, by my faith. So like, I, I think it's been a, lifelong uh, place of dissonance in my life, right? Where on the one hand, like I, uh, you know, have all these kind of theological concepts and, you know, grew up in the church. And I was, I should say, I was that kid who was at church like five days a week growing up. I mean, I was there every time, you know, there was Bible study or uh, even like, uh, you know, uh, things like uh, for those in your Baptist world, you know, things like continued witness training and visitation and Wednesday night Bible, you know, study and um, all of that in the youth group. So, you know, on the one hand, had this very thick upbringing, and yet it gave me almost no tools to even think critically about racism, uh, racial injustice, um, you know, and, uh, and so like, it, it was this kind of like unrecognized dissonance somewhere in the back of my mind that I think over over my lifetime has just gotten louder and louder. And finally, I think, um, you know, one of the key things really was the eruption of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2015. And, and in particular, 
this awful event of Dylan Roof, um, you know, who uh, uh, was, you know, a self-avowed white supremacist who walked into Mother Emanuel A.M.E. Church in Charleston and murdered nine people while they were at Bible study, right? And so he's white and intentionally said he murdered nine black people at church because he wanted to start a race war. Um, and that was one part of the story. But when I dug into the story more and realized that, oh, wait, he was a church going Lutheran, right? Um, he wasn't just some, you know, random uh, white supremacist guy, but I mean, he very much understood his Christianity to be um, compatible with those white supremacist worldviews. And, and in fact, the only image in the book um, that I have is a pencil sketch that Dylan Roof did of a white Jesus emerging from the tomb um, that he sketched in his prison journal alongside this racist screed um, about, uh, you know, starting a, right, a race war and murdering um, and murdering innocent African-Americans. So, you know, and, and in between he was writing these pages, he did this whole page of, of this image of Jesus. He had more than a dozen crosses doodled in the margins of this notebook. And the mainstream media didn't pay a lot of attention to that, right? It just kind of talked about him as a lone wolf, kind of rogue, you know, white supremacist. But I, I think we have to take this really seriously. And it, it was deeply disturbing to me to see that for him, how compatible his Christianity was with this murderous white supremacist worldview. And so I, that was kind of part of what really made me put pen to paper um, because I recognized it right in my own experience. And, and that, that, that frankly scared me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that should be um, most definitely alarming to anybody, <laughs> especially, yeah. especially as, as believers or people who say they follow, um, follow Jesus. And so with that in mind, what are perhaps some other examples, um, you know, for people kind of just to set the scene for today, where the church finds itself today specifically, where are we seeing um, some more things like this pop up, white supremacy rearing its ugly head uh, in American Christianity today? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's a number of events. I mean, I think that was a turning point for many people. Um, and I think the other turning point was in 2017, um, with the events in Charlottesville, um, with the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, you know, where one person was killed. Um, and it was, again, um, you know, uh, people marching. Um, and it was, a, but, it, but kind of paying attention to it is that these, many of these people were Christian and they were shouting things like Jews will not replace us and blood and soil, these neo-Nazi slogans rallying around this monument of Robert E. Lee, right? The kind of, um, you know, revered general in the South uh, from the Confederacy. Um, and then, yeah, I think most recently too, I, I wrote a piece just a couple of weeks ago uh, for Religion News Service um, that I, I titled, you know, taking the um, white Christian nationalist symbols at the U.S. Capitol riot seriously. Um, you know, and I, and I think if we want somewhere like just literally in the headlines a couple of weeks ago from the time we're having this conversation, it was there, right? You know, everybody saw the images of, um, you know, white supremacist groups um, and Confederate flags. I mean, multiple Confederate flags um, everywhere among the Trump supporters that, um, you know, laid siege to the, to the Capitol. Um, but what, you know, again, didn't get quite as much attention were all the, there were Christian flags, there were crosses, there were Bibles, there were Jesus 2020 flags that were made to look just like the Trump flags. And the one that really, I think, stopped me in my tracks was um, that the Christian flag, which, um, 
you, that just if you hear that, you may not be familiar with it, but it, but for most Protestant Christians that have been sitting in churches behind the pulpit, there have often been two flags. There's been the American flag and there's this other white flag um, that is the Christian flag. I mean, it's a white flag with a blue canton uh, kind of up in the square in the corner and a red Latin cross in the side of that square. And it was, it's the, it's the flag. It was adopted in 1942 by the federal council of churches. Uh, so both evangelical and mainline Protestant churches often have this in the sanctuary. And for me, where I remember it, where other people may remember it is in vacation Bible school, right? Where I was taught to say the pledge of allegiance to the American flag and the pledge of allegiance to the Christian flag. And by the way, the pledge of allegiance to the Bible, we had three pledges in vacation Bible school, you know, as a kid and that that flag uh, was carried into the breach uh, house chamber uh, right along with the Confederate flag, right? And I, I think, again, we can kind of, you know, it's, it's easy to dismiss it, but I think it, it's really prudent that we take this quite seriously, that, that these symbols of white supremacy and Christianity were carried side, literally side by side um, in this really awful event. Um, you know, and it's an event that uh, will shape uh, American history forever. I mean, this will be an event in every history book um, you know, going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember doing those, those three things in vacation Bible school as well. Yeah. And I even, I even remember, um, this, I mean, this plays into like Christian nationalism and stuff, which, you know, kind of plays into the conversation as well. But, um, I remember in the one church that I, I went to growing up, they did this thing like close to the 4th of July where they played like, you know, christian like the, what is it, the battle hymn of the republic and like the star spangled mm-hmm. banner like all these like american patriotic hymns as they like march the american flag and the christian flag side by side like down the aisle of the church and all around the sanctuary and all and mm-hmm. um as a kid like i was young i was probably like 11 or 12 when this was going on but i didn't feel comfortable with it as a kid i was like this is weird like this isn't what church is supposed to be um, but yeah, you just, you brought that memory, um, yeah, back to mind for me. Yeah. But, um, so in your book, you, you did, you did a lot of, of history, uh, which is, is awesome because as you were talking about the, the Capitol riots and the, you know, the, the flag, the Confederacy flag and the, uh, Christian flag side by side, um, that's not a new phenomena <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, right. but rather something that has been going on pretty consistently. And you you make the claim, a very strong claim, that Christianity in America has been a conductor of white supremacy. So can you kind of trace some of that history force that brings uh, to light this painful truth? Yeah, well, the history is really important, you know, and uh, I've done more history in this book than I've ever done in anything that I've written. Um, and, and part of it, frankly, was just part of my own journey on this, you know, just uh, so, you know, one way I think about this book is, um, you know, this is the book that I needed to write to understand my own history and sort of the way in which my own family, right, was kind of uh, in my own family's history is intertwined with this messy connection between white supremacy and Christianity um, over time. So, you know, um, it, it's um, sort of where to start. I mean, the, I mean, I guess I'll start with my family. I mean, so I tried very carefully to kind of think about, so what does it mean to me like on a really personal level, right? <clears throat> How does this shape out in my own family? Um, you know, uh, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, but my extended family is from middle Georgia around Macon. Uh, Georgia, about an hour and a half south of Atlanta. 
um, and had been and you know had been there since the early 1800s. I mean, so in fact, my generation, my my siblings are the first generation never to have lived in Macon, Georgia in 200 years um, on, on both sides of my uh, parents' family. So, you know, deep, deep roots, you know, there. And in my, um, uh, one thing I've inherited is my family Bible from 1815 um, that has been sitting on my desk as I've been writing this book. And I've kind of kept it there as a, you know, um, insight, um, uh, as a, a kind of artifact and a reminder. And so in between you know, the pages of the New Testament and the Old Testament, there are these kind of family births, deaths, and marriages. Many people may have an old family Bible like this were handwritten in there or people born, died, all that, um, you know, and the the people who did that uh, enslaved other the early families there, you know, we weren't the gone with the wind people owning these massive, you know, plantations. In fact, we were fairly subsistence farmers, like 200 acres of land um, kind of thing. Um, so, you know, maybe a little above subsistence farming, but even there, um, you know, had, uh, you know, one, one uh, estate I came up with had um, over um, 70% of their assets were tied up in owning other human beings, right? Um, and so like an estate that was worth roughly $50,000. Um, so in today's money, so, and that's like everything they owned added up to 50,000. So not a huge, not a rich family by any means. Um, but even there, um, more than two thirds of their assets were for, human beings uh, that have been enslaved, uh, you know, based on the color of their skin. And, and so this mix of, uh, you know, relatives who had enslaved other people, relatives who were Baptist preachers, uh, you know, all the way through, and that these two things kind of went together. And then the other kind of place I'll just mark is that, um, so again, I grew up Southern Baptist, but it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I really got the truth about um, the beginning of our own denomination. And that, again, that was after being, I can't tell you how many Sunday school classes, um, even Baptist history, you know, at, that taught at my church, Baptist heritage kinds of classes at my church, and still never quite got the, the straight story until I was in my 20s in seminary. And I finally had a professor at, at Southwestern Seminary um, in Fort Worth tell it to me straight and just say, look, you know, it was slavery in 1845 that was the reason um, that, uh, that, that, that there was a rift between Baptists in the North and the South. And the Southern Baptists formed their own uh, their own denomination, and and really getting clear about that and what that would mean. Then, um, so that's the beginning of our denomination, and a denomination that becomes the largest denomination in the country, right? Influencing all kinds of other, um, you know, white Christian groups, um, Baptists or not. Um, what does that mean? You know, not only for our denomination, but what does it mean for? all the other denominations that followed in its wake, right? As it became the largest publisher of Sunday school materials, the largest publisher of hymnals, like, you know, that, that disseminated far beyond um, Baptist circles. And that, you know, and that there had never really been a serious reckoning um, with that history, um, you know, being some kind of token things, but not a serious reckoning in a way that you would really have to look hard, hard in the mirror and, um, and, and really rethink, speaking of the name of your podcast, rethink, right, where we've been and, and why church looks like it does, um, given that history. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've done a lot of history tracing as well with some of our, our previous guests, like uh, Jonathan, excuse me, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove oh, yeah. uh, hung yeah. out with us. Um, and we talked about um, his most recent book and, and really traced um, the through line there as well. And uh, so it's just, I mean, really, it, it's an undeniable fact that 
you know, white supremacy is baked in not only to the foundation of the United States, the country we find ourselves in, uh, but also into much of the white uh, Christian church today. Um, and one of the one of the ways that that um, has happened and has been kind of protected and guarded is through the use of theology. Um, theologies were written to justify slavery um, and all sorts of things. And so you mentioned it a little bit earlier when you talked mm-hmm. about the, um, indivi- the individualistic aspect of things, uh, the hyper-individualism. But um, what, what role has theology played in the propagation and protection of white supremacy or perhaps said it a different way? How has the theology of Christian Americans been tainted uh, by the sin of white supremacy? Yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned, uh, uh, I'm going to mention two things here. One, I mean, I mentioned that this portrait that Dylan Roof drew of a white Jesus um, earlier. And, and I, I think that, that that's one way uh, in particular is just, just merely conceiving of Jesus as white um, has done all kinds of mischief, um, right? And so, you know, so the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about what Jesus looked like, um, but, but we do know where Jesus came from, um, you know, geographically. And it, uh, it's certainly not, you know, Finland or Western Europe, right? So uh, the, the chances that, um, you know, Jesus looked like a Western European are, are slim to none. Um, you know, that, so he, he likely looked more Middle Eastern, a dark, more dark complected. Uh, but, but, you know, if you look at the way Jesus is portrayed, particularly, you know, among white Christian churches and stained glass windows and paintings and in this ubiquitous painting um, that, you know, it's kind of the Aryan Jesus that uh, is probably the first thing that pops into people's minds when you think about a portrait of Jesus. Um, you know, this is a 20th century invention um, uh, that just imagining Jesus as a white person, right, is one way of uh, claiming ownership, I think, of, of a faith uh, in a race-based way. Um, the other, and creating distance between white and non-white people, right? If white people are closer uh, to the image of the divine, it sets up a racial hierarchy just in that very, um, that very concept. Um, and then the other thing I, I mentioned that was actually a, a kind of newer thought to me um, writing the book, though, is that is is in um, how we think about um, uh, you know the end times and the fancy theological word is eschatology, right? Um, you know uh, how the, uh, and and so the way that that is read um, uh, in, in through the through the text, um, you know that the, the shift really for from uh, a, a view that you know, our job was on earth was to um, improve human society, right, and make it better and better. And that that is actually the way going to lead to the second coming of Christ, right? There's going to be kind of upswing versus a very different worldview, which is uh, that no, actually, the way that the divine plan is for things to get worse and worse, um, you know, here on earth, um, and, and that only then will uh, Jesus come and make everything right, right, in the second coming. Those are two very different things. They both had um, uh, a lot of play in Christian theology, but that the fact that that second one where things became worse uh, became so much more popular, particularly among Southern Christians after the defeat in the Civil War, right, as a way of explaining the defeat um, in the Civil War. And the other thing it had was it really undermined um, concerns about social equality in the present, right? Because if things were intended to get worse and worse and will only be set right by the second coming of Jesus, then, you know, Christians didn't really have any, much responsibility in the present to kind of work for social justice and equality and those kinds of things. Um, and there's a perverted way in which, uh, 
you know, that, that they might even think uh, that might be delaying the second coming of Christ if you take that, that view seriously, right? So I, th- I, so I think those things kind of getting built into Christian theology are in addition to this kind of personal conception of Jesus that screens out social justice concerns became a kind of powerful um, kind of formula, um, you know, particularly in the, in the, um, in the wake of uh, the Southern defeat in the, after the Civil War. Yeah, that um, I found that that take on the the whole like premillennial dispensationalism bit uh, really helpful because I, I had thought about that in context to Christian nationalism mm-hmm. um, and how that you know is used to propagate different you know political agendas and all this kind of stuff, whatever. Um, but I thought the way that you tied that in um, with the race question was was really big too. That that helped me a lot um, just in in my own thinking. But also you you had mentioned. Um, this and just a quote that that you had in the book uh, where you said ultimately white spiritual leaders preached that a sanctified purified white south would rise from the ashes to serve as god's last and only hope in modernizing and secularizing the nation and so this like this call to like a, a better thing in the past um which then later you know uh goes on to talk about like restoring the golden age and then even most recently uh, to the f- former president um, campaign slogan, you know, make America great again, um, are all just remnants of that, that same, you know, very thing at, at play. Yeah, you know, the word I've used a lot in this connotation is nostalgia, right? Um, and in fact, I've, I've written a couple of pieces at the Atlantic, um, where I, I argued that one of the things that's happened over the last four to five years um, is that, um, are one way to understand um, the dynamics, uh, particularly for like uh, white Christian support of Trump, um, uh, uh, it, when when you know by by their own lights as so-called values voters, he doesn't really check hardly any of those boxes that uh, that they put forward uh, for themselves. Um, what was to argue that they had really been converted uh, from being values voters to nostalgia voters, right? And that that the driving motivation was less about a set of values they were putting forward and, and saying, we're going to judge every candidate on this set of values and that's who we're going to support kind of gave up on that with Trump um, and substituted a new set of criteria. And it really was um, uh, a candidate who, it, which was really much more of a means uh, ends justify the means kind of theology, right? That, that we're going to support a candidate who will take us back to this golden age, right? Um, and, and something like the 1950s pre-civil rights, where white Christians were unquestionably the majority in politics and culture, um, you know, that, that were just more in the mainstream. Um, and the other, you know, piece I'll throw out here um, from uh, that I covered in, in the previous book uh, to this one uh, called the end of white Christian America um, was that, you know, there's some, there's a kernel of truth to this, that the country is indeed changing. Um, right. So, so people aren't just making this up out of nowhere, right. That things are changing. Um, that, you know, uh, one thing I, I covered in that book is, is that we really have moved um, in the last, uh, you know, a uh, little over 10 years uh, from being a majority uh, Christian nation to one that's no longer, I'm sorry, a majority white Christian nation to one that's no longer a majority white Christian nation, uh, demographically speaking. So if you go back to 2008, uh, when Barack Obama was first running for president, the country is 54% white and Christian. Um, uh, when I wrote uh, The End of White Christian America, we crossed that threshold. That was 2016. Um, uh, when when uh, Trump was first running for election, uh, the country had dropped to being 
45% white and Christian, right? So 54 to 47. Um, and then today, that number today is 44. Uh, so another three percentage point drop over the last, you know, uh, presidential election cycle. Uh, so from 57 to 44%. Um, and, and the fact that that the country has, for all of its history, been a majority white Christian country. And so we are the first generation in American history, really, um, that has been living in a country that's not dominated um, by white, non-Hispanic Christians. Um, and I think that that's a very real shift. And it's part of why um, you hear rhetoric uh, from Trump and other people saying, like, look, you know, um, the country as we know it is going to be over. Um, you know, you're going to lose your country. And if we pay attention to those pronouns, so who's the your in your country, right? Who's the, who's the we? And those and, and those we's are always white Christians, right? And so and and so there is some truth that we are shifting in the country uh, to being uh, to being in a different place, and that part of the power, I think, of of this nostalgia appeal is basically trying to say, no, we should be a white Christian country, um, and we are no longer. And it's just it is really a reaction uh, to um, this this transition moment that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of fear in losing. Uh, power that you've had since forever. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. So people have these, these knee jerk reactions. Um, and also too, I think something that, you know, interestingly enough, um, at least for myself, um, you know, I find this helpful and it has uh, shaped how I uh, think about scripture over, you know, over the years is that one of the things that um, was used very well and very strongly to uh, protect slavery in the country was scripture. It was actually the abolitionists who had a really difficult time making a quote biblical argument because, you know, the, the pro-slavery people were able to do, you know, ver verse and chapter and, you know, point yeah. out like you have this, you have this, we have this. Um, whereas the abolitionists had to kind of make a, a trajectory kind of argument mm -hmm. or philosophical or theological one in, in nature. And so, um, I just think it's interesting how the Bible itself has even um, been co-opted, has been used to, to justify uh, white supremacy and things like that as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll say to this, that, that every time a Southern Baptist leader, um, and not just, I mean, I'll, I'll pick on Southern Baptists because they're the denomination which I grew up, um, but, but I'll say every time a denomination, a white, a, a white Southern Baptist leader makes a comment about a biblical worldview um, or... Uh, the Bible teaches X, Y, Z, um, you know, or uh, our, our traditional Judeo-Christian heritage teaches that. Um, any of those statements, like you could fill in the blank and justify slavery uh, with. And I, I think it's like super important to remember that these sort of like easy, you know, uh, pretensions uh, that, that particularly white Christians and, and, and even more particularly, you know, white Southern Baptists or white evangelicals, have some corner on what a biblical worldview is given this awful history on racism is, you know, just laughable. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in the SBC as well. So I feel like I'm allowed to, to point some fingers at times as well, but um, cause even, you know, even just in my experience with uh, attending an SBC church growing up, but um, yeah, we, we recently did a, an episode. We released it last week uh, with uh, hip hop artist propaganda. Have you heard of him before? No. Mm -mm. So he's awesome. Uh, he's a, like a, you know, first became, uh, you know, came on the scene 
uh, in the evangelical world with a song he did called Precious Puritans. So it kind of got him famous and infamous at the same time. Mm. Um, but his, his work is fantastic. He's a wonderful hip hop artist. He's excellent um, at like spoken word. He used, he used to be like a history teacher, uh, really, really cool guy. But he came on and we talked about critical race theory and you know, uh, kind of connected yeah. it to what the, you know, the SBC feeling the need to denounce that. And um, it, <laughs> I loved it. It was, it was a great episode and he almost didn't do it. And he said that a couple times in the episode, I almost didn't do this because he, he thought it was a stupid question. Um, but he also knew that there were people who needed to hear it. So yeah, um, it was good. And listeners, if you haven't heard that, I highly encourage you to go back and listen because it was a fun conversation. Yeah. I mean, the one final word I'll say on this just real sure. quickly before we move sure. on is just that, I mean, if there's anything I hope like my book and, and other sort of thoughts along this line will do, it is instilling a like deep sense of humility among white Christians um, that should really bring us back, uh, you know, at least a dozen steps from getting anywhere near making major pronouncements on our take on racism, systemic racism, the existence of it, the non-existence of it. I mean, you know, we should mostly, I think, be in listening mode at this, at this point and say, look, you know, we have gotten this so wrong for so long um, that the thing we really need, need to do right now is like gather as many of our African-American brothers and sisters around us as we can and just like shut the hell up and listen. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that posture of, of humility and also I feel like one of, of care and love for the church comes yeah. through very strongly in your writing. And so I appreciated that. It's not just, uh, um, you know, you know, critiquing from the outside or something, but rather it's a, it's a humble critique from the inside out of a place of, you know, we can do so much better. Um, and I, I, yeah. don't know, I, I appreciated that approach to your writing. Well, I appreciate that too. I mean, I think the thing that I think that's that feels rings true to me. And the, the one of the reasons why, um, you know, I draw a lot on James Baldwin in the book and on, and on King and 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 I think for both of them, one thing that I felt um, connected me to them is is people who really had a deep concern for Christianity and simultaneously felt deeply disappointed by its current manifestations. You know, and so I, I think that that's kind of an accurate way of kind of describing, you know, it, it was certainly clear to me that um, had I not cared about the church, I certainly wouldn't have bothered writing the book. Um, right. Um, and, but it, it did come from a, a place of being deeply disturbed, you know, and disappointed and, and feeling like, yeah, you know, we, not only we can do better, but it's way past time for us to do better. Yeah. Yeah. That, that same artist I mentioned propaganda, he has a line in one of his songs, um, and he says, I don't hate America. I just demand she keeps her promises. And yeah. I feel like that, that, you know, similar sentiment, you know, just apply that to church language instead of country language um, fits in, at least for me. That's kind yeah. of uh, where, where my heart comes from. Um, but so for me, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps the most shocking chapter for me in reading your book uh, is the chapter that you titled Mapping, the White Supremacy Gene in American Christianity. And within this uh, chapter, you compile a bunch of statistics and, and research, um, and you introduce something called the racism index. For starters, can you just kind of tell us about uh, the creation of that tool, how it came to be? 
Yeah, well, I mean, one of the key questions I was trying to answer, you know, in the book is, okay, where do we come from and how, and then how is this legacy still with us today, right? So that, so to get to that second question, um, I really had to, I mean, the best way to look at that is to look at contemporary public opinion data and just see, um, you know, how, how is this with us today? Now, as you can imagine, um, asking people about their attitudes about race, racism, systemic racism is a tricky thing to do. So one of the ways that, you know, public opinion researchers do that is we're asking about sensitive topics is to make sure you ask a lot of different questions. So you're not just asking one particular question and then kind of cherry picking the results from that. Um, so uh, what I set out to do um, through a, a survey conducted by PRRI in 2018 uh, as part of our American Values Survey um, is um, I, I set out and, and uh, asked a big battery of questions. Uh, more than 20 questions on race and racism, systemic racism, Confederate symbols, Confederate monuments, those kinds of things. Um, and then looked at those set of questions to see if there was a pattern uh, among them. And it turns out that among, that among at least 15 of these questions, they were highly correlated together. That is one, an answer on one question would be highly predictive of your answer on another question. And so I combined those 15 questions into one big index and then called it the racism index. So it covers a lot of ground. I mean, it can, it covers like Confederate symbols and Confederate monuments. It can covers like racial inequality and views about uh, barriers to African-American economic mobility, um, treatment of African-Americans in the criminal justice system, and even just some general perceptions about race and racism um, in, the, in the country. And across all of those things, um, then really what I wanted to do is to try to see, okay, what difference does Christianity make among whites? Really, because that's the real question, right? So does Christianity... Um, and, and, and one other way of saying, does, does, does taking your average work, white person and adding Christianity move them closer or further away to African-American views on, on these issues? Another way of thinking about it. So set out to measure all that. Um, and the short answer is that, um, you know, certainly these attitudes and this legacy of white supremacy is very much still with us today. Um, and I think one of the more surprising views uh, or results that the statistics reveal is that it that it the problem is much broader than white evangelicalism in the South, right? And um, that's not just there. I mean, maybe that's not such a surprise that in the former states of the Confederacy, you know, that we that, that you can still see this. Um, but uh, but it was true both among mainline Protestants and among white Catholics um, in in the country. So when I boiled it all down, what I did is I scored this index on, a, on a, one way of understanding is a scale of zero to ten. Um, and we're 10 being holding the most racist attitudes, all right, or, or if you would put it negatively, the most likely kind of deny the existence of systemic racism um, in the country. And I was, you know, uh, surprised to see white evangelical scoring as high as they did. Um, they scored um, uh, eight out of 10 um, on this scale. Uh, but again, um, white mainline Protestants scored seven out of 10, and so did white Catholics, approximately seven out of 10. So a little bit less, but I mean, way over on one edge of the thing. And then if you look at whites who are unaffiliated, right, who claim no religious affiliation, they only score four um, out of 10 on this scale. And so that gap between where white Christians were and white non-Christians were, um, with white non-Christians being much closer to the views of African-Americans who are down around two and 10 um, on this scale, is really the heart of, heart of the book. And then I set out to try to break it um, and the rest of the chapter, you know, I said, okay, well, 
maybe so that's a correlation right um that you can see but maybe the correlations about political party or it's about living in more urban areas or it's about education levels maybe it's not about religion and, and so i set out in the rest of the chapter to kind of ask those questions and, and do um and and you know the good thing about statistical models you can actually test these things so i put in controls for party affiliation and for education levels and rural versus urban, men versus women, you know, all the kinds of things that I could think of as alternative explanations than religion. And even with all those controls in, it turns out that religion is still an independent force um, here and in predicting. And, and so that was the, I think the take home at the end of the chapter is that, you know, um, the answer to that question is if you take your average white person, you add Christianity, uh, they move higher up, the racism index scale rather than lower. Um, and then the last thing I tested was um, church attendance because you know there also could be an argument that says, okay, well, uh, maybe these people just claim to be really, uh, Christian, right? But they're not really connected to a church or they're not listening to sermons. They're not being discipled. They're not part of Bible study groups, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I, I had um, a, a variable for religious attendance that I, that I tested. And it turns out that among White Catholics and white mainline Protestants, religious attendance basically makes no difference uh, one way or the other. Uh, it does make a difference among white evangelicals, but not in the direction you might hope. Um, in other words, um, that uh, those who attend religious services uh, more um, have a stronger relationship between uh, holding uh, racist attitudes and identifying as white evangelical, right? That relationship is stronger among those who identify more than it is among those who identify uh, less. And then I have this um, sentence at the end where I try to put it in plain language and I put it this way, you know, what the data suggests um, is that if you were recruiting for a white supremacist cause on a Sunday, um, you would have a higher likely success rate um, hanging out in your average white church parking lot than you would approaching white people sitting out the services in a, in a local coffee shop. Yeah, which, Oh, man, um, <laughs> when, like I said, that, that chapter was, it was the most jarring to me. And when I came across the figure, the, the one that you had mentioned, uh, figure 5-5, five, five, which um, is predicted probability of white evangelical Protestant identity by racism index score and church attendance frequency. Um, I literally had to close your book and walk away <laughs> uh, because it was that shocking and jarring that like literally the exact opposite of what you would hope and expect and think to happen um, doesn't. And so like, if that doesn't sell somebody on the fact that there is a problem with white supremacy and racism in the church, and it's not just in the South, like you rightly pointed out yeah. in general um, and specifically uh, it's at least at its highest peak within, you know, white evangelicals, which I guess uh, the SBC is still the largest um, Protestant denomination in the country, right? right? And that's largely right. what populates the, the evangelicals. Um, that, I mean, it's just absolutely jarring. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have yeah. words for it. That, that chapter shocked me. Yeah, well, I have to say, I mean, I had the same, it's funny. I mean, I had the same experience writing the book. I mean, there were several times where I would write, like when I wrote that sentence, um, that I just mentioned, um, I, I, I kind of had the same sense. I stopped. I mean, I remember like, you know, the cursor sitting there at the end of the sentence after I put the period there and just kind of stared at it and thought like, 
my God, can that be right? That sentence that I just wrote, you know, um, and, and just kind of staring at it and realizing like, yeah, um, that's right. You know, and just how devastating it was, right. To kind of take that in and realize like, man, yeah. So, okay. So that's where we are, um, you know, today. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, there's a way in which if, if, um, you know, I guess for me listeners who may hear that, you know, without reading the book and, um, or if I had just said it, you know, before writing the book, or I'd heard somebody else say it, I would have thought, well, I don't know, you know, maybe it's not quite that bad. But I think one, the thing that became clear to me too, is that once I really got clearer about the history, and then saw the current, current uh, opinion data, like on, on the one hand, I think, you know, the, the question of dismay you want to ask is like, oh, God, how can this be? Um, you know, but I think when you really sit with the history, the question kind of becomes, how could it be otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think it was so important how you laid out the book where you, where you do do the history and then the theology, and then you you offer the, the findings um, because they all are deeply interwoven. And it, it, it kind of ties into that idea like you were talking about earlier about the um, hyper-individualism uh, found so often within white Christian faith, uh, you know, the, the idea being like, oh, um, I'm a sinful person. I'm responsible for my own sins. I need personal forgiveness for my sins. And then if I can get my shit right, then, you know, hopefully everyone else can as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you, I mean, you can just see it play in so clearly. Like, like you're saying, it's connecting all those dots is, yeah, absolutely. Just a, of course, this is the results. Like the results match the history, match the theology, um, and it's a it's a an issue, um, and you, you you talk about this later. But it's an issue that has to be attacked at the roots, um, and it has to start with understanding, uh, which is I mean I think just another reason why your book is such a gift um, to so many, including myself, uh, because it has to start with with understanding the roots, or else um, you're not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, and also uh, something that I also appreciated that you did uh, throughout the book and, and you had mentioned this a couple times in our interview already is uh, you kind of share your own story and you share the story, um, you know, of your family's history and your family's past. Um, so for any of our listeners who might want to look into that, you know, what, what advice would you have for, for our listeners who also want to look into um, and acknowledge their past and maybe yeah. what would you caution somebody who says, eh, I'm not going to do that. What, what advice might you have for them as well? Yeah, well, I, I think we've got to tell our stories, you know, and I think we have to tell um, a truer history um, of ourselves. You know, I think any, you know, I think a lot of churches that have been around a while, you know, eventually get around to publishing a church history, right? Some local people get together, they kind of say, oh, we're going to tell the story of our church. Those are almost always rose-colored glasses, you know, stories of, uh, you know, the founders could do no wrong. They were only motivated by altruism. Um, you know, so I would say that there's a personal and a corporate version of the story that I think white Christians should tell, right? So I think on the one, on, I'll do the corporate one first real quickly. Um, I think if every, every white church in America tried to answer this question honestly, it would lead to a, um, a, a really important conversation. And that is, why is our church physically located where it is? Right, because there's any number of reasons that is true, and almost all of them in the in the history of America will lead back to race. Right, so if it's an old church, 
Um, it's probably in a whites only designated, historically whites only designated area of town. Um, it may in fact even have been a part of um, a neighborhood covenant that restricted African-Americans and, and people of color from living in that neighborhood. Many churches actually served as an anchor point for neighborhoods like that to come up with, um, you know, restrict, uh, even building it into the very deeds and titles of houses that um, you could not sell your house. It was part of the deed and title of your house. You could not sell it uh, to anyone not white. Um, and, and many churches were anchoring those kinds of neighborhoods. Um, you know, if, it, if it's a church that's a newer church out in the suburbs, um, uh, it, it's almost without doubt there's a white flight story uh, there, right, that goes back to this public schools being desegregated and whites moving out to the suburbs so they can still go to public school, not have to pay private school tuition, uh, but only with white kids. Um, you know, um, and so I think just kind of telling those stories um, carefully um, would be really important. Um, and, and, um, and then I think the... Um, the personal one is really important too. I mean, I learned a lot just by kind of thinking through my own family's history. And, and I could say this is like, is, so this is something like only a white person could say. Um, and, and that is, um, uh, I tried to ask myself, um, and this is one place to get started. I, I tried to ask myself, like, when I think back about like my childhood and my early adolescent years and even early adulthood, where does race show up for me in those memories, right? Where do I even think about race. And like, that's a totally nonsensical question if you're not white, right, in America. Uh, but if you're white, like you have the luxury of like not thinking about it. Um, and, and, the, and the truth is that like, it took me some, some journaling, you know, I didn't spend months and months, but I mean, it took me some, some journaling practice to just say, okay, I'm going to think first about like my earliest adult, my earliest memories before I was in school, then I'm going to think just about elementary school. Now I'm going to think just about middle school. And I'm going to think about high school and college and just kind of giving myself the space to kind of think about that. And then these stories kind of came back, right? I mean, a couple that I tell in the book of a, like a, a black friend of mine uh, visiting our church, you know, in high, in high school after a church lock-in and it's so freaked out uh, the adults uh, that we had this black kid sitting in the choir loft singing with the youth choir uh, that they called an emergency deacons meeting to try to figure out what the hell to do if his family was going to try to join the church. Like it set off a kind of panic. Um, and this was like, you know, uh, in my lifetime, right? It, it's, uh, this is not that far back. Um, and so I, I think kind of letting ourselves tell those stories. And the other thing that I found out that I wouldn't have known, um, again, it, it kind of just is one more piece of kind of one more, you know, brick in the edifice of understanding my own family's complicity with white supremacy is, um, you know, I found out um, after talking with my parents um, that my grandfather um, had been recruited. He was a deacon at a Baptist church in Macon um, and had been recruited to basically be a sentry or a bouncer on the outside of the church on Sunday mornings to prevent any African-Americans from coming into the sanctuary in the early 1960s, um, kind of late 50s, early 60s. And that, that was a pretty common practice um, in, um, among white churches was to kind of make sure Nobody not white was going to enter, you know, enter the sanctuary and, and uh, desegregate, you know, a segregated sanctuary. So I think these stories and, and, and the other experience I've had is I've kind of talked to people. We're going to wrap with this is that once I tell my story and you tell your story, um, it inevitably fires neurons with someone else. Right. And they can tell their story. And it's, pro and it's often a story that they've completely forgotten about. Right. Are kind of packed back in the back of their mind. But I think us having a practice of telling these stories, I think, especially for white Christians, 
it's just vitally important because we 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 had we've had the luxury of not thinking about it and of kind of taking events that we knew were kind of a little funky at the time, like that like that event you mentioned about the flags, right? Of kind of just okay, I was uncomfortable, but then I can just forget about it because it's really not much at stake for me, really, um, in this. Um, but we can bring those things back, I think, in ways that are can we can reflect on them now. Yeah, absolutely. That's. Yeah, I want to I want to comment on that real quick, and then I have one more question for you because I yeah. know we we have to watch our time together. Um, but I think it's it's just so interesting. Something that you said that that stands out is this idea that um, as a white person we don't have to contemplate or think about race or how we experience ourselves because we live in a white, you know, within the white majority, that's, you know, white supremacy, uh, that's, you know, to use another phrase, white privilege existing. Um, Whereas, you know, our friends, like, for example, we just had um, Jamar Tisby on the show. And uh, for people like Jamar, uh, he's an African-American male. He has to think about race every single day, almost consistently with how he's interacting with people out in public and all this kind of stuff. And um, to quote (laughs) propaganda, once again, he has this really great line in in that song, Precious Puritans, uh, where he says, it must be nice, pastor, to not have to contemplate race. It must be nice to be able to contemplate the stars. Like, so he's, mm-hmm. he's going on about that. And so I just think um, your point is so well taken and it's so important uh, to have your eyes open to that. And to, um, I mean, Jamar recommended that same practice that, you know, you recommend looking back into your racial history um, and learning those things and telling those stories. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really good. And I guess, um, I have two questions, so I'm just going to pick one though. I'll, I'll end with this one, um, because it has to do with moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, one common temptation that I face, um, and you talk about this in the book is this idea. Um, so I'm a, I'm a high school and young adult pastor. So I interact with young people on, on the regular, um, and their generation gives me a lot of hope, um, that this kind of stuff uh, is actually changing as you were alluding to. Um, but one thing temptation that I fall into is then going, okay, well, hopefully then I guess when all these old people die, (laughs) this kind of stuff will just go away. And my hope is in this younger generation, which seems good, but there's also a problem there. So why is that the kind of thinking problematic and moving forward and, and what can we do moving forward? Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, and, and I, I, it, I think there's some reasons for that hope. And in fact, in the, in the, in the acknowledgement section at the end of the book, I write about my own son and daughter, right. Who um, have very different, uh, my daughter's in college. My, my son is in elementary school. Um, but I mean, they have such different experiences than I did growing up, you know, their friendship networks are very diverse. Um, you know, they grow up with a kind of awareness of race um, you know, that I just never had um, and, and, and are just exposed to so many different things. Um uh, in terms of diversity, racial diversity, religious diversity, you know, that just were completely absent from my radar screen. So I do think they've got more tools to work with. Um, here's the scary thing, though, is that um, uh, I, I actually call um, that temptation that you're talking about uh, a version of magical thinking, right? Um, that, and, and I think the line I have is, is something like, if we can resist the magical thinking, that time will resolve our moral uh, obligations for us. Um, right. And, and uh, because the, the thing that we forget, right, is that theology 
uh, and church institutions and liturgy and hymns, um, they're designed to be cross-generational vehicles, right? I mean, that's their very, I mean, the reason why you have these kind of embodied practices and institutions is so they can pass something from one generation to the next. Uh, and, and I think that the last thing we want to do, and, and what the data suggests that, that white Christian churches are in danger of doing, is taking the hopefulness that we see in this new generation and blunting it rather than helping it along, right? Um, because if they inherit this individualistic view of Jesus, if they inherit this view um, of, you know, there's no need to work for social justice in the world because it, it, it needs to get worse before Jesus can come and make it better. Um, you know, uh, it, it undermines their best instincts, um, I think, rather than helping to grow them, right? Um, and so I think that's why the work inside of Christ, white Christian churches is so important, right? Because we need a new theology. We need some new hymns. We need some new liturgy. We need some new prayers. We need some new practices, you know, that are about um, passing along the best of the tradition while rooting out, um, you know, the things that have been tied up with white supremacy. And that's serious work. I mean, this is, we're talking like hundreds of years, right, of kind of blind passing that stuff down uh, to the next generation, you know. And so I think the the obligation, and, and I'll, I'll maybe end with this this thought too, is it kind of takes me to kind of where I land the book. Is so often we we white Christians have thought about this as kind of an altruistic thing that we're doing for black people, right? Um, you know, so okay, we've done all these black people wrong. Now we're going to try to get reconciled with them and make things better. Um, and and it's it's a thing we're doing for somebody else, right? And certainly that work of repairing that damage is vitally important. I'm not trying to kind of say it's not. Um, but what I think many white Christians, and I'll put myself in this category, I think before digging so deeply on the, in this book, underestimated um, is the damage that that has done to us along the way, right? And that that's not altruistic at all, right? It's, it's very much about our own, what we we're passing, literally passing down uh, to our kids and to our grandchildren. Um, and that that's serious, important work, I think, that we've got to take up in order for, um, you know, uh, to, to really hand down a healthier um, faith um, to the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So to, to kind of tie it into some language our, our listeners would be familiar with, um, we talk a lot about a deconstruction of, of faith, you know, your faith deconstruction, journey reconstruction, whatever. Um, but this specific issue itself is an area where the church as a whole, specifically the white Christian church needs to come together. And there's some major deconstruction and remodeling um, that needs to to take place, um, and we, we have to do that together. So, again, uh, Robbie, thank you so much for your time today. I know you have to go. And listeners, uh, please be sure to pick up a copy of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. I'll be sure to link that uh, for us in the show notes. And also, I want to uh, link some other websites uh, where people can connect with you and um, some of the articles you had mentioned. Um, as well. Is there anything specifically you would like people to know who would like to, to find you or get connected with you? Uh, sure. Well, the, the website is prri.org. We've got like a daily newsletter if you're a real wonk and really want kind of data, religion and politics data, um, and then kind of breaking news and other kind of less frequent newsletters. Um, and then I guess the other um, other place that uh, if you want a, another long format, if you haven't gotten enough here, want a longer format here, <laughs> one of the things on my bucket list I got to do um, 
Fresh Air with Terry Gross on oh, NPR. Um, so you can find that. Uh, that was from the one the book came out last year. Yeah, that's awesome. Good deal. All right, well, I'll be sure to link that as well then. Great. All right, All right Robbie. So Thank you again so much. And listeners, Thanks, yep. as always, peace and love, guys. Go Caps. <laughs>